Hello, I'm Amanda Jezik, IDSA's Senior Vice President for Public Policy and Government Relations. Welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series that aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by talking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be talking with Dr. Jason Newland of Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis and Noelle Ng of the School Superintendents Association about the Delta variant's impact on children and how it is affecting in-person learning. Thank you both for joining us today. Dr. Newland, let's start with you. Can you give us an update on infection rates among children? So infection rates of COVID-19 in children currently. So the best data comes from the American Academy of Pediatrics and the Children's Hospital Association, where they take publicly available data and provide it on a weekly basis. As of the week of September 9th, so ending September 15th, there was a reported 243,000 cases for that week. Now let's put this into context. Overall, since the beginning of the pandemic, there has been 5.3 million cases of COVID-19 in children zero to 17 years of age. During the winter surge, we all remember the winter surge. Our peak week got to 211,000 cases. If we then continue to look at what happened, our lowest rate was at the week of in June, where we had 8,000 children cases. And the highest, again, the highest amount of cases was a week beginning September 2nd, and we were at 251,000 cases in that week. So if we put those two um, numbers together, you get over almost over a half a million cases of COVID-19 in a two-week period of time. Now, thankfully, it's going down. Now, what does this mean for hospitals? Well, it means hospitals have more COVID-19 cases in their hospital. More kids are sick. More kids end up in the hospital. Now, are, is it more severe because of this Delta variant? That's not, that's not, has not been seen, but there are more cases. Additionally, if we look around the country of where we're seeing the most cases, well, they happen to be in areas, the South in particular, where vaccination rates are the lowest. I think if we're going to learn anything from this data, we have to know that with the rates highest among children, many of them unable, again, unable to be vaccinated, that the highest rates are in the areas where the people who can be vaccinated aren't. So, we have to get more people vaccinated that can be vaccinated. I want to add a couple other things to this is that not only do we have a lot of COVID-19 right now, there are other respiratory viruses filling up the children's hospitals across the country. This includes respiratory syncytial virus or RSV that occurs always in the winter, except when it's uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. So we've had a summer RSV season. We're also seeing rhino enterovirus increase. So there are a number of children's hospitals around the country that are packed. They're filled up, some in the South, a lot of COVID-19 where ICU beds aren't available. They're having to move people to other places. This is what the story is. And then lastly, another lastly, if we look at our emergency departments, the emergency departments are filled across urgent cares, our pediatric offices or any office caring for children are also filled because there's a lot more colds. A cold in 2021 is not just, hey, I can be home and nothing because they want to go to school. So you got to be tested and we'll get into that next. So just know the pediatric landscape is wanting a break and the break will come with more vaccination and doing the mitigation strategies we'll get into a little bit later. At the time of this recording, children across the country have been back to school for two weeks to a month. Noelle, how prepared were schools for in-person learning? 
First of all, thank you for the opportunity for us to participate in conversations like this. The school superintendents have been deeply involved in the work to get in schools open safely throughout the course of the pandemic. And so being able to talk about the strategy of opening schools with the science and data of what infection and the vaccination pickup and just infection rates look like, that really matters. Because to get together, you have your safest path forward and conversations like this are part of that. So to your question, how prepared were schools for in-person learning? They're always prepared for in-person learning. And so the question is how prepared were they for in-person learning in the middle of COVID? And my answer today is the same as that it's always been. The direct ability of a school to get and stay open safely depends upon the willingness and ability of the broader community to do what it can to suppress COVID spread. I mean, I think Jason and I kind of sound like we're speaking in an echo chamber here, but all signs point towards that obvious answer. So superintendents day in and day out know how to run a school system. That's their jam. That's their professional expertise. It's their professional responsibility. The work to support their schools to be open for in-person learning in the midst of a pandemic, totally dependent upon uh, resources. Do they have the fiscal, the money that it takes to get mitigation strategies in place, to have ventilation, to do all of that? It's a little bit easier to address because that's black and white. The, the bigger issue is some of the big P and little P politics. Will your people wear masks? Will the adults in your community facilitate that conversation? Will the people in the broader community who are vaccine eligible get those vaccines? And it's not just asking those questions. It's being able to have those conversations with a, with a modem of decorum and not have it be a, a shouting match of who said what louder or first. And I think what that really all demonstrates is that there's a lot of unnecessary complications into reopening schools that don't really need to be there because it is as simple as trusting your superintendents and school boards who without hesitation are focused on the safety and learning of the students that they serve and the staff that instruct them every day while trying to have conversations about how and when should masks be a part of that? How and when can we help support the community towards broader vaccination? How and when can we really anticipate getting to a place with widely open schools with minimal impact for significant quarantining or having to close down because of COVID spread? I don't think we're, we're near there. I think we're gonna continue to see a little bit of an uptick as we get further into the school year until we have broader vaccination. At the end of the day, we know what we need to do. And it's just about the broader community's willingness to do that and to support superintendents and school boards. And something that is a bit of an irony of this reality is everyone wants schools more open. So why can't we do the work to support it? IDSA invites you to kick off ID Week 2021 with Chasing the Sun, COVID-19 Beyond the Horizon. This global event begins Wednesday, September 29 at 10 a.m. Eastern. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and other partners have provided funds to offset the cost of attending Chasing the Sun, which gives you access to health authorities from around the world offering unique global perspectives and data on COVID-19. Register now at idweek.org. As Noel just alluded to, mask wearing has become a real hot button issue in some parts of the country. Dr. Newland, tell us what you know about the effectiveness of mask wearing. Mask wearing uh, changed the pandemic for all of us. Uh, mask wearing protected and was a me as a measure of protection. I, and I go back to Springfield, Missouri and a Great Clips uh, hairdressing place that is now going to be, it's going to be in the history books of this, this investigation of two hairdressers cutting over 130 people, wearing masks, actively sick, right? So actively infected. Um, and none of those 130 plus, by the way, more than 15 minutes, all of them were getting their haircut. None of them, none of them got sick. Uh, none of them tested positive. 
And what we do know is hairdresser A gave it to hairdresser B in a break room where there weren't, weren't masks wearing. I mean, I think this is the one story that kind of talks about, then if you go through all the literature that we have, that's been even in the school setting, adding masks to this level of mitigation that Noel so nicely you know, mentioned and talked about and the community supporting masks, because before it was like, man, if we do masks, we can go to school, let's do it so we can be in school. We saw transmission rates that none of us ever dreamed of. We shut down school in March of 2020 because we didn't really know what to do. And we were like, oh, we can do When we started adding masks, things change. And as we learned about in our hospital settings, in congregate settings, and anywhere that we know that the rates, when in mask environment goes super low versus if you're in your house, where the rates of transmission can be in the order of 50 to 75%, at least data will say 50%. I'm curious to see when we get more Delta data suggesting it's probably going to be higher. Noel, let me follow up with you. Tell us about how superintendents have been dealing with the controversy over mask mandates in schools. I, I think they're handling it with in the same manner that they handle a lot of pushback, right? Superintendents serve the public. And so feedback from the public is an important part of any, any conversation, whether that's coming on social media, through an email or letter campaign, through yelling at a school board meeting or proper discourse at a school board meeting or letters to the editor. It, it's feedback that they're responsible to take. At the end of the day, uh, you, you saw some of the same almost tongue-in-cheek posts. School districts enforce dress codes. Why can't they enforce math? But I think the other thing that's really relevant here, how much of the pushback is actually coming from the kids who are going to have to wear the masks? I think this is a lot about adults who are just really drawing a line in the sand on something where, while I understand that interest and that passion, I really want to have a broader conversation about the accountability for what's more important, defending a right to wear a mask or not to have to wear a mask, as opposed to the ability of your child to have in-person learning and or other children who can not or physically cannot either get the vaccine or cannot wear masks because the nation's public schools have to serve all kids. And it's about the, the element of I'm doing this for my safety and your safety, the community aspect of both a school district and a school district is trying to operate in the middle of a communicable disease. So I, I think that the bottom line for mask mandates is, is that it's been unnecessarily complicated and it's just drawing down and slowing down the work to get schools open. And it, it's taking attention away at board meetings where boards should be able to focus on what are we spending these dollars on in terms of learning recovery? What are we thinking about for this summer to continue to support the students who have been out of school or to rethink how we do our staffing patterns? Or right now we're seeing a significant number of drivers, school bus driver shortages. So in every conversation that's in a board meeting that's about wearing a piece of cloth over your face, there's a conversation that's not helping happening that's actually related to student instruction. Thank you, Noel. Such a valuable perspective. Mask wearing is just one of the mitigation measures used to prevent the spread of COVID-19. Dr. Newland, can you tell us about other strategies? Well, this was this has been what we worked on, worked on with our superintendent, school boards, and other individuals to help, you know, identify what those strategies are. And there's a great, great publication that I think highlights uh, how we should think about mitigation strategies. And it's one of these publications that tells us, look, if you have a break in your mitigation, you might, you're going to have cases. So what's the story? The story goes back to the MMWR published on September 3rd. This was the Marin County outbreak in an elementary school. And so let's just stop there. Number one, we had a teacher who was actively sick, who was unvaccinated. So let's just talk with the big top one, vaccination, right? We're going to talk about vaccination. We can get all eligible people vaccinated, we've already put the one layer in, right? 
we can help our superintendents, our school boards, our school staff, our students, because we're going to limit the number of people that now walk in to our building. But number two is we had an actively sick individual, right? So the runny nose and cough, the headache, that we was like, oh, I think that's just my allergies. Well, it's COVID-19, and I can tell you the number of people all of us have heard of that said allergies and tested positive. Well, that's the step back. Okay, so I'm not going to go in. I have new symptoms. I'm going to get my test. Boom, I've stopped it, right? So now we're talking about we're not going in sick. Then we get to the masking. We've talked about masks. We got to support. We got to support these folks so that I think, as Noel's mentioned earlier, the irony of this is without masking, we then end up having more people out of school because we have more quarantines. We have more people sick. Now we've already hurt what we were trying to do from the get go. So masking adds to that layer. We put in ventilation. We make sure things are open. Now, in the Marin County, they had ventilation. They had their distance. They had the things we talk about because those things we have there. But it's all of them, right? They also had masking. People in the front row were masked, but we knew the teacher brought down their mask. And I'm sure not. Ever, and we're not all perfect with masking, right? We bring down for a little drink, do things. Over time, that can matter. So we got to have all layers. Think of that Swiss cheese we talk about in healthcare. Right. The more layers of it, we do better. And the more we'll vaccinate, I think that'll add the, the greatest layer again. And then we do the other things, especially with the masking. Noel, some of these additional mitigation strategies as part of these layers pose particular challenges for schools. Can you talk about some of those? I will. I just want to reiterate something that Jason just spoke to, though. Some of these mitigation strategies are low hanging fruit, low impact and low cost. So things like wearing masks, washing hands, opening windows if you can, to the extent that you can do those, it just compounds the ability of collectively the mitigation strategies to work. So going back again to what Jason said and the, the conversation about masking in general, that matters. Now, for other mitigation strategies that could pose particular challenges, one of the big ones that we see a lot of literature about is redoing your HVAC system. People get it. You need to do an HVAC system over. And when you look at the average age of the nation's public school infrastructure, it's something like 70 to 75 years, let alone how old some of those windows might be, if they can all open, if you can open them without compromising facility physical safety to ensure this physical safety of students. Those are some of the most high cost mitigation strategies also will run into timing issues, right? So you might say you want to do your HVAC system, but the ability and timeline to get that contract brought on board and starting to be implemented, you can't necessarily ensure that that work can even start by the time these dollars have to be fully obligated. So there's some technical complications as well. When we look at the vaccination, that's a a mitigation issue as well. We did have the executive order from the president that's mandating vaccinations but it only applies to every public school in the state that has an OSHA plan. And those non-OSHA plan states, uh, it's dependent upon what a governor may or may not do and or the ability of a superintendent and school board to take that action. And if a superintendent or school board takes that action, how and if the community receives that or pushes back on that. And so it's as much a, an actual capacity as this big P and little P politics. It's all of that together. We know the importance of testing throughout this pandemic, But as with some of the other prevention strategies, implementing a testing program in schools can be difficult. Dr. Newland, how important is COVID-19 testing in schools? You know, Noel highlighted this, right? There's a lot of other pieces of just saying, hey, let's test or, hey, let's do some ventilation. That makes it a lot more complicated. And I think as on the healthcare side of it, it's been that partnership and collaboration with the individuals that Noel works with all the time, the superintendents, that you get to learn some of these things about, okay, where do I put in some of this value? 
And where is that value the most needed, right? So if we look at the mitigation strategies without testing, our data would suggest there's a one to 2% transmission rate in the schools. Now that's not perfect. So now the question is, we also have data that suggests that if we're doing weekly testing in those, maybe those who are unvaccinated, that's been talked about and done, right? With some of the mandates or just do that of people, then maybe we're gonna identify those individuals sooner and prevent them from being in school, which also works. And there has been some data suggesting that adds to this. I think the reality of it is, is that you have to look at all pieces of this and can you afford and have the process in place to do it. But most importantly, we have to have availability of testing. We need, if somebody is sick, to have respiratory cold-like symptoms, which happens all the time, we have to have that ability that they can get tested. And that's for everybody, right? That has to be equitable and that we're utilizing that where it can be. And then to have the systems in place so that the correct follow-up happens, right? That we identify maybe a staff member who has high-risk conditions that is eligible for monoclonal antibodies so that not only do they get their positive, but they get someone to talk to them and say, hey, I'm, you're positive. Oh, you have health. You need to make sure you can maybe receive the therapies that can prevent some bad outcomes, that can prevent additional hospitalizations. So in the end, I think testing is something that we need to talk about, encourage, make sure it's there. Now, how it gets implemented has to be talked about with the school and how one can do it so that it is done correctly, safely, and provides the biggest bang for the buck. Noel, can you tell us about COVID-19 testing from a logistics standpoint for schools? Any push towards testing, which is something that's welcome, that's a dollar a resource or a staffing person that's put towards testing instead of an instructional role. And that is a decision that does need to be made by the school district, but that is an opportunity cost, right? Because school districts don't operate with unlimited funds. Uh, that said, what I was just looking through was the story in the New York Times just yesterday about a growing trend for schools to look towards a test to say policy or approach. Now, it, it's very clear the CDC does not yet endorse that. They are absolutely looking to the schools that are doing this work to report on what it looks like. I think it's rather obvious that if you're a district that's doing tests to stay, perhaps, because that would really apply to the kids who have been directly exposed to someone who's tested positive, those kids should probably be wearing a mask if they're going to be testing to stay. Again, layering of mitigation strategies. But I, I do know that the concept of tests to stay is getting more and more uh, attractive and interesting to superintendents. Because the current policy as endorsed by the CDC, because it has the data behind it, is that if you're exposed, you stay home for 14 days. And 14 days is good, but we have to look at, well, then where are the districts on remote learning? And there wasn't a sudden deluge of people rushing to get certified for teachers. And a lot of school districts, if they're all in person, you can't realistically expect all of your teachers to do live instruction teaching and then parallel stream or have another teacher who's there then able to do remote instruction for the kids who have to quarantine. I have teacher friends who are being put in the position of, well, just live stream your class. And that's all well and good, but we haven't fully implemented the emergency connectivity fund to ensure that all of our students have adequate broadband at home to support the remote learning that they need while they are home quarantining for 14 days. And so all of that is going together. From a logistics standpoint for schools, though, you saw the pushback they got on masks, and that was just about putting a piece of cloth over your face. Testing is an actual procedure. Granted, it's just something up your nose for a few seconds, but where does consent come in? Are you going to have parents suddenly willing to get their children all tested as often as they would need to be tested? Where are staff going to be on that? What is we're, my phone call this morning with some of the people in the administration was all about supply chain issues. Are we going to be able to have enough tests to do the volume of 
testing that's going to be necessary to have it be a valid and reliable part of a multi-factor mitigation strategy. And all of those are considerations that go into uh, an increasing trend, again, as referenced in the New York Times article towards test to stay, but we need to see what that looks like. Noel, you know, you brought up this great point about that testing capacity. While we're all for the testing, like if you don't have it, you can't do it. And there's no doubt. I mean, our, our here in my own community, our local pediatricians are like, look, I, we don't we're running out of tests. And who would have thought, right? Like in September of 2021, we'd be talking about what it was like in June and July of 2020 when we're still trying to get our ramp up of testing. So I think that's just super important to think about in that piece. So thank you for bringing that up, Noel. On the day of this recording, Pfizer has just announced data for its COVID-19 vaccine in children ages 5 to 11. Dr. Newland, what can you tell us about the data and what can we expect in terms of FDA review and vaccine availability for this population? Well, let's just first say woo-hoo-hoo, jump in for joy, high-fiving, let's go. I think that's exciting news. None of us really have seen the data. And we also should know that in a pediatric vaccine trial, you're not looking at that the same effectiveness piece. You're looking for a little bit do we make antibody? Do the children make the antibodies? And then you see some of that. And then you mainly look at safety. We should all be super excited that, that a company's coming out and say, hey, we, we have the data. We feel comfortable in the data. We think the data is met, will meet the requirements of FDA to be, to be evaluated. So that's great. So now we have to think, what's the process? Well, the process, FDA looks at it. They look at the raw data. They, they go, in. we should be all thankful for that. Because when you, someone goes, well, I'm not sure it's safe. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, they look every fine tooth piece, every I and T that are dotted and crossed are all looked at by the FDA. And then we're going to have the external advisory board, which we learned about, we've heard about throughout, right? They just met last week about the boosters. Well, that advisory board will take everything they learned and they'll go over that. And then they'll provide a recommendation to the FDA. And that's likely to be at the end of October, though none of us have heard that date, but that'll be set. That'll be the next thing that we'll all be waiting to hear. And then they will make, then FDA will take that, make the recommendation. And then the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices will make that recommendation following that. So with all that being said, I really think, I really think that maybe we're talking November, but you got some brilliant listeners that are better experts than I out there. They might have some other thoughts, but I, I really, I think we're close. I think we're close. Thank you, Dr. Newland. It is indeed encouraging news. Noel, how are schools preparing to support vaccination for students in this age group? This is better news than it could have been, right? Like the initial data could have been not good. So I'm going to be my optimistic silver lining self. And today is a good day. And now we'll let the CDC and the FDA do their thing to look at the data. Uh, the other thing I want to highlight, I was talking about the, the data announcement today with my staff. And one of the things we want to clarify is that for anyone who's excited about the Pfizer vaccine data and or that Biden OSHA mandate, districts can use their American Rescue Plan funding to pay for their school staff to get vaccinated and to pay stipends for kids to get vaccinated, right? We've seen a little bit of a underperformance as you might in terms of school districts really getting all those kids 12 and over vaccinated. So just a reminder that that's an opportunity as well. As for what we could do for the younger kids, we could we kind of should start yesterday about what it takes to get the infrastructure in place so we can hit the ground running. Because what today's information does is it tells us all systems point towards go. And so if we know that maybe in November or December, we're going to realistically have access to a vaccine that can be used for our youngest kids in the K-12 setting, we should start now to build that infrastructure because we know what it's going to take. It's going to take a physical place. 
It's going to take a staffing capacity. You're going to need mitigation strategies in place on site as well. That could mean additional masking, more hand sanitizer, ventilation conversations, foot traffic, ensuring physical safety so that people who might be coming on site, if you're running this for your students on your school district site, making sure that those non enrolled kids or non-enrolled parents are maintaining the physical security of your building. All of those logistics take time. Those are not hard things to answer. Those superintendents know how to do that. And it would be really good to the extent possible that school districts start thinking about that now. It could be something that they do in coordination with their educational service agencies or even their state educational agencies. And it's also something that I think the federal agencies have a large uh, opportunity to start thinking about right now too, right? They're going to put out guidance. They're going to put out technical assistance. And they saw the same news we did today. Systems point towards go. And to that end, if you really want to leverage or maximize the return on investment for what this could be in terms of moving the needle towards really good in-person instruction with significantly suppressed spread, you start the work now. At this time, I'd like to thank Noel and Dr. Newland for their time, participation, and expertise. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. I'm Amanda Jessick. The views and opinions expressed here are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Involvement of CDC should not be viewed as endorsement of any entity or individual involved with the podcast.